Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Last week, we caught up with the granddaughter of Marjorie Harris Carr, who was able to block the cross-Florida barge canal as part of this now decades-long movement to free the Oklahoma. And Craig's latest Florida Phoenix column, floridaphoenix.com, goes even further into that movement and, and this, this seeming uh, cascading push to, to try and finally try and push this ball over the goal line, Craig. Yes. Yeah, I, I wrote about how, um, and, and Jenny mentioned this too, that the St. John's River Water Management District announced that they're taking public comment on what they should do about the uh, Rodman Reservoir and the Kirkpatrick Dam, which were built as the first step in building the Cross Florida Barge Canal. And so even though they, they her grandmother blocked the canal, she wasn't able to get them to tear down the dam and empty out the reservoir. So it's still there. It serves no real purpose because there's, you know, there's no canal that goes with it. Mm. But bass fishermen love fishing in that area because of all the submerged uh, trees because it flooded a big part of the Ocala National Forest. But fans of the of the Oklawaha say we need to tear out the dam and let it flow freely once again as a wild and scenic river. And so I talked to I talked to folks from the Freely Oklawaha movement. I also talked to folks from the Save the Save Rodman Reservoir who say they're eager to answer this questionnaire too, that they think there are plenty of arguments for keeping things just the way they are. Uh, and then I sort of went with the argument of yeah, but the dam is killing manatees and we're having this big manatee die off right now, you know, especially in the Indian River Lagoon, but other places mm -hmm. as well, where we're about to hit a thousand manatees dead in one year. That's way beyond the previous record. We've got this dam that occasionally kills manatees, too, and it's run by the state. Is that really something we want to keep doing? <laughs> and you say kill kill manatees. This is not like a, a, a down the road effect. I mean, they get no. crushed in there. They this get, is they directly get turned, killed. I call them yeah. aquatic, the aquatic version of Flat Stanley. That's what's yeah. happening there. And and it's not pretty. It's not pretty. And so mm -hmm. and it's the state doing it. So maybe that maybe, you know, if you if you consider the two arguments both valid, I don't. But if you consider both arguments valid, I think that's the one that tips it over the edge to say, Let's tear down the dam. Let's get rid of it. Let's go back to a free-flowing Oklahoma. Manatee, one of 50 good reasons to get rid of Kirkpatrick Dam and free the Oklahoma. Again, in the show notes, I will include the link uh, from the Free the Oklahoma group about how you can comment in favor of removing the dam and freeing the river. Well, right. And the this, deadline's October 22nd. You got to yeah, get it in so before that. Get on it. Right. Yep. Um, this week's guest, uh, a fascinating one, maybe even more than most. Uh, Andrew Ross is a professor at NYU. He has spent a great deal of time in Florida researching two books. Craig, tell us a little bit about Andrew, how you came across him and, and why we're having him on now. Well, um, uh, he's one of the featured authors at the Miami Book Fair International this year. And and so we'll, we'll be featuring several of those authors, but he was he's the first one. And I, I'm really glad I, I he, he came here and lived lived for a year in Celebration, the town that Disney built near the theme parks mm -hmm. uh, that it runs and that wrote about that in the Celebration Chronicles, which came out in 1999. And he promised some of his his neighbors he'd come back after a certain interval and, and check up on them. And he did and found just horrible conditions, not just in celebration, but in the surrounding area. And he wound up writing a book about homelessness in the shadow of Disney World, which yeah. is just, it's an, it, I'm just, I was just blown away by this book. It's, it's, 
it's under 300 pages and every page there's something on it that will make your jaw drop honestly the book is just published and it's the first of two episodes we'll have uh, about disney because there was a big anniversary this year yes, correct yes the, they turned the big 50 uh it's the 50th anniversary of disney opening its doors to the public so we'll be talking about this uh about disney on this episode mm-hmm. and also a little bit more about disney history with uh, richard fogelsong who uh, literally wrote the book on Disney history. It's called uh, Married to the Mouse. That one will be coming up too. So that we're all starting on sort of the same uh, level of understanding here with Andrew. Andrew Ross is the author. Again, the new book is Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing. I've got links to this and the Celebration Chronicles in the show notes. So just uh, bear with me here as I go through the uh, rundown. In this dismaying and deeply reported follow-up to the Celebration Chronicles, Ross, a professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU, returns to Florida's Osceola County and discovers a region beset by breakneck growth, hands-off regulation, depressed wages, and real estate speculation. Noting that Osceola County has the least amount of affordable low-income housing per capita in the U.S., Ross explains how the 2008 mortgage crisis led to commercial and private properties across the Sunbelt region falling into the hands of private equity firms that have jacked up rents and housing prices. Though Disney World attracts some 75 million annual visitors to Central Florida, the region's medium wage is lower than any other tourism destination in the United States. And that is where we pick up with Andrew Ross. Andrew, what first got you interested in in investigating a celebration that Disney built? I was sort of sent by a book publisher, mm-hmm. a book about celebration. I'd heard about it. And uh, for a writer, it was a really a wonderful opportunity to, to be there really in the very fledgling years and be able to spend a year there and uh, report on the trials and tribulations of the first wave of residents there. And that was in the, uh, the late 1990s. And, and I wrote that book, The Celebration Chronicles, which came out a couple of years later. I sort of promised some of my neighbors at the time that I would return in 20 years because <laughs> I feel every new town needs a chance to, you know, to grow up and mature before, before you can take a proper look at how, how it's working out. So that's the reason I went back 20 years later. And it, it led to this book, even though most of the book is not about celebration, but a, a chapter of it is. Um, right. Well, it's a, but it's about sort of the, the effect that Disney has had on Central Florida and then the, the effect of the housing crisis on the rest of it. Uh, right, right towards the beginning of the book, you, you mentioned something that just totally floored me that Celebration High has the highest uh, number of uh, homeless kids attending it of any other high school in America, which just wow. that just floored me, uh, absolutely floored me. Tell us a little bit about what's happened to Celebration in twenty years, and then about the the uh, what you found in the area around Disney uh, as far as as housing. You know, the, the, I started interviewing residents who I knew when I went back twenty years later, and it's very easy to fall down the rabbit hole of small town uh, gossip and small town. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't really want to do that. Didn't have a lot of patience for that, but I, I realized that there was a much bigger story and it had to do with the sale of the downtown center by Disney to a private equity firm in, uh, in New York, a wall street firm uh, in 2004 for reasons that um 
that really escaped most people because this was a firm that had no prior experience in managing residential communities. And uh, there were many other, you know, potential uh, buyers who, who probably would have made a much better job of managing the town center. But the private equity firm, Lexin Capital is its name, did what uh, private equity has done all over America. Uh, snapping up, um, snapping up single-family homes for the most part, but in celebration, they bought a whole town center. To some of your listeners, that might seem uh, a little far-fetched that a whole town center could be could be sold, but that's the real estate marketplace that we live in. The firm did what private equity does, which is pretty much drain the place of equity and revenue, selling off parts of it, um, refinancing, and then. The ultimate goal is to flip it. This is a story we've seen in communities all across the country, and it was playing itself out in celebration of all places. The difference is the Disney factor in celebration, which is always there, despite the fact that Disney sold most of celebration. And also some of the downtown residents were fighting back, a feisty group of condo owners. I loved I loved the one character in there, Cookie, who... Uh has worked as, as dressed up as Minnie Mouse for the, while working at Disney and then later became a, a real estate agent. I thought she was very, she was a very fun character to follow. Yeah. Cookie has, has a very, uh, a very turbulent history uh, with the Disney company from having been a former employee and having sold a lot of houses in celebration actually, but now she was at war in, in essence with, uh, with the company and the company to which Disney had sold the town center. So, that's the story that I report on in, in the book, and that's the substance of a chapter about celebration. And, and I feel some, somewhat responsible. I'm a, I feel like I'm a kind of unofficial historian of the town. <laughs> <In that respect. laughs> when you say uh, town center, give people a little more uh, specifics. Is it single family homes, condos, um, you know, duplexes? What, what do you exactly mean by that? What was sold specifically? The town center of, of uh, celebration was um, it was kind of built before most of the houses, which is unusual on the real estate landscape. But Disney wanted a you know a vibrant town center up and running and wanted tourists in there. So it's a mixed use place, mm-hmm. which is to say there are there are businesses uh, and condos or apartments above the businesses in in the style mm-hmm. of a typical pre-war town, but. You don't see that so much anymore. So it's a mix of restaurants, um, uh, stores, and condos. And it's very iconic. There's a lot of iconic uh, architecture and celebration, but the, the town center is, is probably the, the showpiece, the crown jewel of uh-huh. celebration, if you it's, like. It was all built in this sort of new urbanist style. Uh, like we Exactly, which is very much a Florida product, or I had it in the center in Florida. Like Seaside. Like season panhandle, yeah. Why yeah. build this place to begin with? If you're, you're Disney, why why am I going to build a, a town? What what motivated that? Disney had the land; uh, it's a huge chunk of land in Osceola County, and and they did a sort of market research and figured out that they didn't want to build something that would be rivalrous with the theme parks. So they decided a residential community, uh, permanent. Resident mm-hmm. community was was what they would do, and actually they did a pretty good job of designing it. The building of it was very hasty, however, and generated quite a few problems. The maintenance uh, 
the neglect of maintaining town center, which is is part of the problem with the private equity firm's management, is certainly true. They neglected the maintenance, but some of the blame can be laid at the door of Disney from way back for having uh, having constructed it so quickly. They wound up with roofs that turned into waterfalls and and, uh, and rot and bug infestations and so forth, right? Terrible stories. Uh, the condo owners uh, living in a state of you know extreme physical distress, some of them, and and really not being able to get uh, remedies from the company. Did that motivate them to sell the kind of backlash and they just realized their heart wasn't into this? Or why, why did Disney decide to divest of this uh, real estate asset? Uh, the goal all along was to sell off chunks of celebration, oh, yeah. you know, at, at the highest market price, of course. And there's very little land left in celebration that the company owns. That said, the company still has um, a, a controlling um, controlling say in some of the governance bodies in celebration and has a veto vote ultimately over a certain oh, no kidding <laughs> development. But, but is that part of because they they are their own government there the reedy creek improvement district no craig they they uh um they split themselves off celebration was split off from the reedy creek improvement district back at, uh so it's 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 an unincorporated part of osceola county but disney's very controlling and mm-hmm. uh surprise anyone that they maintained a controlling interest in in the towns mm-hmm. affairs, even after they sold most of it reedy I, creek I, improvement I, district help people out like myself who are not familiar with that uh, craig or andrew what is what does that mean sometimes referred to as florida's 68th county i believe <laughs> <laughs> that's a good term for it the self-governing entity uh with uh, with its own powers Zoning powers and policing powers, and so on and so forth. Yeah, when 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 Walt came to Florida, uh, he'd already bought all this land using shell companies, and then approached the state government, the governor, and the legislature, and said, basically, we want to be our own government. We want to be our own entity. And the legislature's like, anything you want, Walt, you know, <laughs> bring it, bring it on. And so they gave them the the power to be their own government and set their own standards for everything. They even have the power to build their own airport and their own nuclear plant if they want. That's actually in the law. Uh, and I found it ironic that the the movie theater in, in Celebration is closed. I mean, this, you know, the, 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 the whole point of Disney is entertainment. And, they're you know, obviously a big producer of movies, but you can't see a movie in Celebration anymore. Not for a long time. Largely a result of the, the, the policies of the, the management company, the private equity firm, I would say. But it, it, it is it is starkly revealing people who visit and find the movie theater is not not open for business, yeah. mm-hmm. which moves us into the new book, Sunbelt Blues Failure of American Housing. So 20 years later, you go back to do an update on celebration and, and actually don't focus so much on celebration. What did you find there that shifted your focus from you know a straight sequel to carry on the movie uh, metaphor we've got going here? Partly, and Craig already mentioned this when I discovered the the very large number of homeless children in Celebration High School, which is very surprising to me and many others because a relatively affluent community. But the you know the catchment area for uh, for students lies outside of celebration. So I I basically just followed the homeless kids in a sense outside the 
you know, the white boundary fences of celebration and found most of them living, you know, single, single rooms in dilapidated motels along the strip that runs outside celebration. And it's really the main drag in Osceola County, Route 192, it's called. Has other names, but everyone refers to it as Route 192. The motels along that corridor, which used to be the main approach road to Disney Main Gate, coming from the oh south. wow, and that's why the motels were there originally to provide accommodation, budget accommodation for travelers. They've long since uh, lost a lot of their functionality as you know uh, hospitality centers. And so they're they're largely filled with um, you know fairly permanent long or long term uh, rentals, uh, local people, including uh, a wide array of you know families in transition from foreclosed uh, homes, elderly and disabled trying to live on government checks, a lot of economic fugitives from from the north, snowbirds, uh, climate refugees. From, from the Caribbean and a lot of pushers, you know, trying to trying to provide relief from the pain and the hardship. So it's a very it's a very rich spectrum of humanity. And, and those are the motels that I lived in when I was um, when I was doing the research for the book. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the film The Florida Project. Yeah. Uh, by Sean Baker, which which is a actually a very good snapshot. Uh, what life is like in, in these motels. And that's one aspect of the housing crisis nationwide that is very neglected. There are millions of people all across the country living in these uh, budget motel rooms. They've become the default housing choice mm. for a lot of Americans who, who are priced out of uh, homeownership and rental markets. You can find them everywhere, but it's, it's a very neglected story. I was really impressed with your reporting work in this book where you, you track down, you, you obviously you, you stayed in the motels yourself and talked to the people you met. You found some of your former neighbors from celebration staying there and, wow. and also staying in, in other places where, you know, the woods, you talk to people who are camped out in the woods because they were literally homeless or uh, folks living in cars and so forth and, and transition one from the other. Were there any stories that you found that were particularly poignant or that affected you personally? A lot of them, um, especially in the woods, I would say, you know, I spent, I spent um, a summer and a half really in the woods. Again, they're neglected part of the the housing landscape. If you can't, if you can't make it in the motel, if you, if you're not able to keep up with your, your weekly or monthly rent in the motels, you're, you're you're likely to find your next neighbors are are alligators and possums in the woods because that's where that's where a lot of Central Florida's homeless population ends up in tent encampments. And again, it's not just Central Florida; it's it's nationwide. And another neglected story because most media commentators focus on on urban. Yeah, people living under bridges and so forth. Yeah, yeah. journalists. Uh, you know, it's not that they're lazy. It's just that they, <laughs> that's that's where they that's where they see them. They're not they, if they don't see them, they don't know to go out there and look for them. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's uh, that. I think I think the most poignant stories really came from people who've been living in the woods. Some of them for a long, long time, a decade or more. Jeez. 
Um, I, I mean, I can imagine what the sanitary conditions and the safety and security is like in those sort of places. As far as numbers go, are we talking dozens of people, hundreds of people, thousands? But what's what what is the size of this community that is living on the margins there in in Central Florida, in the motels, in the in the woods, uh, trying to just get by today? It's difficult to estimate. Every so often, there's a you know there's a homeless count that's done once a year by by HUD, the government agency. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's it's always an undercount. I mean, most homeless advocates would agree that uh, that the estimates are far too low, and uh, for all sorts of good reasons, uh, some of the tent encampments are uh, in places which which uh, prohibit access or make it difficult to access. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're generally near to commercial strips because most of the people that I found in the camps were, you know, they were they were participating in the economy in some fashion, maybe the informal economy. Some of them did their labor. Some of them had regular jobs. Others had, um, you know, mental health and drug addiction problems that, that really made them unemployable. But there's a wide range of, of folks uh, uh, living out there difficult to really estimate numbers chad but a lot more than you think largely because they are they are invisible yeah well i mean i had no idea this community existed so if you told me there were five people it's more than i you know would think so i mean that's uh it's a remarkable window into something certainly that we don't get a a a picture of purposefully in florida and an entire state that is set up to bring people here for the fantasy of the beach and the theme parks and uh, restaurants dining outdoor activities the whole thing i mean obviously this is not the picture of florida anyone in any sort of official capacity wants uh, visitors to be aware of and just the contrast of they're in this living right next door to these fantasy lands the theme parks Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, dealing with this very gritty reality, I was also struck by uh, this never occurred to me, but in your reporting on the the motels and motel life, that a lot of the people working at the motels were doing so in exchange for being able to live at the motels. Uh. That's fairly routine. That's a source of cheap labor for the, the motel owners. The motel owners, I I mean, I interviewed a lot of them, got to know quite a lot of them. They've they've become what I would call reluctant landlords. I mean, they, they got into this business as, as hospitality people, but they've ended up as landlords. And again, that's happened all across the country. And, and, and they, know their, they know their tenants very well. They're not uh, absentee uh, owners for the most part. And they know the hardship they're dealing with. At the same time, they, they, uh, they extract quite a lot of money from these long-term rentals. Mostly, uh, the rents are pitched at a rate that's just slightly below the market rate for apartments. You don't have to pay first and last month's rent to get in, obviously. So it's for people that are really on a tight budget. The motel makes sense. What's it, a ballpark monthly fee? I'd say from it's two hundred and fifty dollars a week and upwards. Okay. So you know, a thousand dollars, say between a thousand dollars and twelve hundred dollars. That's Close to market rate. I was going to say that's not exact. Yeah, you know, thinking well, what five six hundred bucks a month. You know, no, that's <laughs> no. Uh, no. They're very carefully priced to extract as much revenue as possible. Mm. And Jen, mm-hmm. Craig mentioned the discount labor 
from the the residents who who are doing this uh you know this 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 work in kind as it were housekeeping and landscaping and cleaning and so on and so forth uh, what do these kids do you know the kids the the homeless students that go to the celebration how do they spend the other 16 hours of the day they aren't on on campus or what do they do all day weekends summer yeah that's a good question they um they they obviously they live in very tightly confined spaces i mean large families in one room basically the older they are the 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 more incentive it is to get outside and as far away from as possible from from their rooms so the parking lots um aren't necessarily filled with with kids in in a way you might imagine they're not playing in their backyards after a certain age mm-hmm. um, they're going further afield and you know luckily you're in a warm weather climate so they can do that and be outside for most of the time that's not the case in cold weather locations motel dwellers in cold weather locations that have a tougher time i think more confined one thing that struck me is how many of the the folks who are technically or literally homeless had dogs with them was uh-huh. that something you found a lot I did. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. I hadn't thought about it, Craig, but uh, there were a lot of dogs. And it adds to your expense. I mean, yeah, they're a comfort, but. Yeah, you you are, yeah you're living with a dog in that one, one hotel room. There's a lot in the woods also. Um, you can't, you usually can't have dogs or pets in homeless shelters. Mm-hmm. So I found that uh, a lot of the folks with dogs who, who might have been in a shelter preferred, you know, preferred to be out in the open. And, and in general, the preference, the preference to living in the woods was very interesting because there are a lot of folks, mostly white, they're predominantly white, um, unlike, uh, unlike population in urban homeless shelters. Uh, a lot of them had rural background. And so they were used to living outdoors, hmm. quite comfortable with living outdoors, even though, you know, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's yeah. Climate, especially in the, in the summer, is very challenging if you're outdoors. But they uh, they also had a lot to say about their you know the relative freedoms which you don't have in shelters. There's all sorts of rules in shelters, um, in 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 virtually no privacy, which which you have in the woods. So they were with, a lot of them within their comfort zone, and and some of the encampments were quite elaborate in compounds with. Uh, you know, flat screen TVs and generators and uh-huh. sound uh, music systems, swimming pools, and so on and so forth. Uh, really well crafted, some of them. Others were living amid piles of garbage. Uh, there's a wide variety in, in the encampments. There are meth camps and heroin camps and beer camps, I found, and, um, and self-elected leaders in each of them. I was offered a lot of beer. No one ever offered me meth or heroin. Well, thank heaven for that. Yeah. <laughs> and this this must be a, a community that police obviously take a willing blind eye to. It's not like they're they're unaware that these people are living off the grid and all the, the, the drug use that you talk about. And I'm sure there's 
hey, you can't do a thing in my county without someone blowing you up over a code enforcement. So I'm sure there's plenty of code enforcement to, to say <laughs> nothing else of illegal activity going on over there. So this must be a, a hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil kind of situation with the, the cops. Well, that is an interesting point, Chad, because the counties, uh, you know, to the degree to which I can generalize about the county's policy here is as, as long as they're not in public, as long as they're not being unsightly in public and scaring tourists, then um, then then let sleeping dogs lie. Hmm. Um, it's the same with the motels. The, the county doesn't really... Uh, properly regulate the hotel, the motel owners, because the motels are fulfilling a purpose. They're basically affordable housing and, and, and they're welfare housing and workforce housing, because most people who live in the motels are full-time employed. Are they really? And wow. the county really is not in the position for all sorts of reasons to provide alternatives to generate affordable housing so the status quo they're quite happy to really you know to let the status quo be in the woods and in the motels what do osceola county leaders say about this situation or do they even think it's a problem that they need to solve they do yeah they do it's uh it's it, it is a high profile topic um of conversation in the county and and the housing um you know the planners Osceola County planners and, and and people responsible for generating affordable housing, they they do what they can. They've taken some baby steps towards uh, provision of affordable housing, but they're really up against a, a number of challenges. One of which is the you know the state legislature in Tallahassee, which uh, has preempted laws that prohibit things like rent control and inclusionary zoning, all, all the planning tools that the planners usually have to encourage affordable housing. Tallahassee has, uh, has put the kibosh on. So they're, they're limited, even though, you know, there's a lot of celebration of home rule in the part of counties in, in, in Florida. They're actually quite limited in what they can do. And when they do, actually, I mean, Orange County launched a big affordable housing task force recently, but the mandate for the task force was, was to uh, generate affordable housing purely through the market, purely through market delivery. And the record of that in the last few decades is quite dismal, I would say. I mean, market delivery alone has, has failed to provide affordable housing time and yeah. time again. And when I was doing my interviews, Central Florida was number one in the nation on the list of the worst places to try and find affordable housing for low-income people. No kidding. Worst in the nation. Wow. And Osceola County, being the poorest county in Central Florida, was, you know, the very worst. I'm going to piggyback off what what Craig asked and say, what is Disney's position or stance uh, about, you know, these homeless people living in the woods dealing meth within the shadow of the, the mouse ears? And a lot of Disney employees live in the motels or living. Disney has a, an appalling history when it comes to affordable housing. Um, really, there's really not much to show for it. And one of the questions I ask in the book is, you know, can large employers like Disney, Disney's the 
biggest single site employer in the country in Disney World. Can we can we expect them to be responsible in some way for for the housing options of their employees? This has become a big deal in California with the the big tech corporations that have been held responsible to some degree for you know rising rents around them, and they've they've rolled out these high profile billion dollar campaigns. They're very long in PR and actually quite short in philanthropy, but at least they're responding. I don't think they pay we, enough to pay. They care enough to pay lip service. That's that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. <laughs> and they have the money, but so does so does Disney and so do Walmart. But do we expect these big service sector corporations that employ hundreds and thousands? Do we expect them to do anything um, for in the way of housing for their employees? They could. I mean, Disney has a lot of land. That could be uh, that could be set aside for affordable housing, even in Central Florida. Imagine if they even used some of their, say, their their budget motels, their all star resorts, and converted them into employee housing. I mean, that would be a that would be a big first step too. Yes, uh, and and there's been a lot of talk about converting hotels and motels into housing, uh, mostly at the budget end in Osceola County. Although even here in New York City, we're hearing a lot of talk about this from our new mayor, who has this plan to convert a lot of hotels in, into housing. I doubt that Disney will take that step. I think it's. Uh, I think that you know the, there's too much revenue generated from its. Um, you know, its, its value hotels, what they consider to be their budget hotels, mm-hmm. but they do have land. Even in Celebration, there's a large chunk of land to the west of I four. That uh, that would be a, a prime location for building affordable housing. These Disney employees uh, that are living in the the budget motels, full time employees, part time employees. What's their pay uh, scale? Their wage? What kind of uh, economic position are they in that that forces them into into that choice? Well, the part timers are are certainly going to be you know, in that quandary anyway, but uh, there are a lot of full-time and reasonably well-paid by Disney standards employees living in the motels. And in the book, I, I kind of cover the, the story about the, the Disney World Union campaign for the $15 minimum wage, which was successful, not just at Disney World, but had a sort of knock-on effect in, um, in, in paving the way for the state uh, statewide $15 campaign, which was also successful. And that was a 50% hike in wages, actually, over, over yeah. the last contract. But uh, it still doesn't close the housing gap, because if you look at the statistics, you're, you'd need a $19 an hour wage in Osceola County to afford a one-bedroom apartment. So the $15, as good as it is, doesn't get you there. And uh, and and so it's only it's it's only a start, and it's not going to resolve uh, the issue long term. Central Florida's rents right now are less affordable than New York City's. Jeez. Believe it or not, yeah. I mean, in well, terms of the, the amount of percentage of income that's that's spent. Yeah. Just to do some real quick and dirty math, $15 an hour times eight hours a day is like 120 times five days a week is $600. That's before taxes. And you said, you know, rent in these places were, you know, 250, 300, something like that. So I haven't 
put gas in my car. I haven't had a thing to eat. You know, I haven't had paid, you know, one bill or let alone put shoes on my kids or on my own back. So $15 an hour, again, that's great for a high school kid or, or someone just out of college and you've got, you know, five roommates and, you know, whatever for a family that, you know, $15 an hour is it's not close, you know, it's, yeah. it's just not close to what you need to have, uh, you know, the sort of housing, even at the low end, which should be expected for a full-time employee in the United States of America. Again, this isn't uh, this isn't a meth dealer. You know, this is not someone who's on government assistance. This is a member of this uh, capitalist system. That, you know, at the very bottom. You know, but you know the the, the people that we need. You know, fifteen dollars an hour. Is, it's a big improvement, and and still a long way from. any sort of safety net. The other thing I noticed was there, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like a lot of the folks you encounter, at least some of them were uh, dealing with the death of a family member that they were okay. As long as they were a two income household, Mm. but as soon as they were down to one income and trying to raise kids that kind of put them in the homelessness spiral. Was that, am I, am I right about that? That that you encountered quite a few of those? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and again, I I hadn't thought about it till you mentioned it, Craig. You're a much better interpreter. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't do the research, there are several, any number of factors that can that can knock you sideways and and upset the balance of your household budget. As you know, there was a study several years ago, St. Louis Federal Reserve, I think it was, that showed that uh, the majority of Americans live four hundred dollars from. Uh, from you know catastrophe, basically economic ruination. If they get hit with a, an unforeseen four hundred dollar bill, then they're in the toilet as far as their household budget goes. So yeah. it, it can be you know it can be a medical bill. It can be uh, it can be anything. Brakes go out on your car. You need new tires. I mean that's more than four hundred dollars. That 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 and I've heard those statistics before, Andrew. And that that tissue paper thin margin separating you from like, I've got a roof over my head and I'm not hungry to I'm living in the woods is, is just astonishing in in America's new gilded age is it really $400. That's the difference between I'm making it. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's just, it just struck me that, you know, we tend to stereotype homeless people as the, the bums living under the, under the, bridge but in fact it could be any of us at any moment that we're all just you know sort of one step away from from winding up in a budget motel you know trying to keep body and soul together and yeah that's basically what that's basically what i found and in fact uh yeah indeed you mentioned there was several ex-celebration nights that uh that i found in the motels people who'd, who'd fallen quite a long way and quite precipitously so it really, yeah, it doesn't take much. And, and a lot of folks who find themselves in that position think of themselves as in transition and they can end up spending several years in the motels, the long-term option. Not yeah, I thought, that was, I thought that was intriguing, the psychological games that people play just to get through the day of, I'm not really homeless. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just in transition and this is a temporary state and I'm going to be back on top again real soon, but mm. it just never quite happens. 
Yeah, and that is partly a reflection of confusion in government definitions of what is homeless. There's, they're, they're, it's sort of confusing if you look at HUD definitions. The children, the children are considered homeless and, and, and are eligible for services, but the adults and the parents are sometimes not. And, and then there is that, that psychological component that you mentioned, Craig, people who really don't want to think of themselves as homeless because of the stigma. And there are others who, yes, that's me. I'll take what <laughs> they can get <laughs> yeah. um, from whoever, whether it's you know, a charity, a church, or a government agency. I, I, I need assistance, and I'm willing to think of myself as homeless to get it. Last one for me as, as we begin to wind up, and this has been a, a fascinating and, and sobering conversation, Andrew. Whether you want to take this small picture, Central Florida, the celebration area, or big picture nationally, because you study these trends nationally. Is this housing issue for low-income people improving or exacerbating? It's getting, it's definitely getting worse. The pandemic has seen uh, not just housing prices, but rents also soaring. A recent analysis from Zillow. I hate to interrupt you, but can I ask you why? Why would a, a pandemic cause, and I've seen it where I live oh, on Amelia Island in Florida, housing has gone up prodigiously in the last 18 months. The value of my house has increased six figures since the pandemic uh, based on comparable sales in the area. Why? I, I, I don't understand the, the markets enough to, to get that. Uh-huh. Well, markets are very local especially housing markets. So there's, they're, 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 they're kind of uneven. I mean, rents in New York City and San Francisco dropped initially during the pandemic quite a lot, but they've been climbing again. And some, some markets, they never dropped at all, like Central Florida never dropped. So they're, they're, they're kind of uneven, but in general, overall, the, the trend has been upwards, which, yeah, quite frankly, has surprised a lot of people. One of the factors is is corporate ownership. Private equity firms have been very, very active in snapping up houses. One in six six houses in the second quarter of this year was bought by a corporate owner. And uh, and, and that's a recipe for upward pricing right there, I mean, from from the get-go. And in some markets, it was one in four. I don't think we're going to see, you know, any kind of mitigation of the hardship in the housing crisis. In fact, I think it's turning into an emergency. It was a crisis. It's turning into an emergency because of the possible eviction of hundreds and thousands of families now that the moratoriums have run out. We're not seeing a whole lot of response from the government. Joe Biden uh, rolled out an affordable housing plan last month, which called for 100,000 new houses over the course of the next three years. That's a drop in the bucket compared to uh, really what's needed. And I can't imagine DeSantis is the least bit interested in addressing this issue on a, on a state level. And the legislature, of course, we have, a, we have an affordable housing fund in Florida and they keep raiding it for other purposes and yes. cleaning it out. Yeah, exactly. The end of the book actually offers some proposed solutions, which I, I strongly encourage people to read the book and read, read the proposed solutions. I kind of wanted to end up on a different note, though, which is, but let's say you go back to celebration in another 20 years. What do you expect you'll find then? <laughs> oh, bye. 
I don't know. I'm I'm kind of stumped by that question, Craig. I'm I I I am not in the prediction business. And 20 years ago, 20 years ago, if you'd asked me about celebration, yeah, I would have imagined it would be commercially successful. I would have imagined also that celebration was playing more of a role in the region, you know, using its resources. It's it's mm-hmm. a, a lot of wealthy people, very knowledgeable people. And yet it's very insular there. They're, they're very isolated from the rest and of the community. Much more insular, yeah, than, than, than I expected. And um, so in, in 20 years' time, I guess that's what I would be looking at and looking for. But there's no one from Celebration who's ever held a countywide office, for example. Let alone, no kidding. Which is unfortunate because there's, you know, there, there's a lot of social and economic capital there that could be used to help other people in, in the county. There's some charitable initiatives that the, the churches engage in for the homeless, but they're, uh, they're, they're not matched at the level of actually, you know, celebration residents getting involved in local politics. One more thing occurs to me. We, we have an, an awful lot of folks, you're driving through Florida, you stop at an intersection and there's someone there holding a sign saying, homeless, please help. What should people do about that? Should they give them a dollar or should they hold off and instead, you know, donate to some institution? Well, what do you do? I always, I always give money. And, uh, and partly because, well, partly because of the work that I've done, I didn't always give money, but I do now, especially in New York. Uh, I don't want the, the, I don't want this discussion to be happening inside my head about whether the person who's asking me for something deserves it or not. Because that distinction between, you know, the, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor has a very, very long history. And it puts you in the position of making moral judgments about people that you, you, you know nothing about. And so I don't want to have that conversation going on in my head anymore. So I, I, I automatically, you know, give money to whoever's asking for it. And I recommend that your listeners do too. Dr. Andrew Ross is a professor at NYU in social and cultural analysis, author of numerous books, the two that are going to be of most interest to our audience. The new one is Sunbelt Blues, Failure of American Housing. Uh, The previous, The Celebration Chronicles, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Property Values in Disney's New Town. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and and insights today. This has been really eye-opening. Yeah, it's it's a it really is a terrific book. It's not a very long book, but it's a it's it's packed, and I strongly encourage people to yeah to read it. And I'm glad you're going to be uh, featured at the Miami Book Fair. I'm hoping this book gets a lot of attention. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you having me on this podcast. You've got a copy of the book, Craig. You've read it, Holy and before cow. we yeah got on, you it, you went on and on. Oh my gosh, it just it well, like I said, that first statistic that I encountered about the number of homeless kids that go into Celebration High just sort of encapsulates everything. I mean, you know, would it take got, a million guesses before you got uh, Detroit, Oakland, Las Vegas, uh, New York, I mean, yeah. And San Francisco. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Los Angeles. It's just, it, but no, it's Celebration High is the most. And it's just, and then reading the rest of the book, it just, uh, I was spellbound, honestly. It, you know, I, I read a lot of, I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of thrillers that, you know, keep, get you mm-hmm. hooked. In, but this was like that because, the, of the the human stories that he he tells and the way he tells them and and uh, 
Well, and what I, yeah, what I like about it, and you talk about his reporting, this is not a guy who went for a weekend and stayed at the, you know, Grand Floridian and rode the rides and was there with his family. You know, when he did the first book, he lived in in celebration for a year. And then when he went back to live in the the motels and to really immerse himself in this community and, and with these people to get that sort of detail, that's going the extra mile, man. Definitely. And he knows what he's talking about. He's coming at it from the from the academic standpoint. So he knows the history and he knows the, the legal foundation, a lot of this stuff. And it just it's it's like I said, it's not a long book, but it's a very it, yeah. it's a book that has a lot of impact to it. And, well, and I'm, uh, I'm glad we were able to touch on the workforce housing thing and we don't have the time to get into it here. Florida, in my opinion, is uh, driving off a lot of cliffs, water, yeah. uh, open land, green space, the environment, sea level. Workforce housing is another cliff. This state and my county, Nassau County, Fernandina Beach, Amelia Island in particular. I mean, we are Thelman Louise, baby. And uh, <laughs> as long as development can make a dollar more putting up a third home or a condo as opposed to workforce housing, that's the choice, man. Well, and he points out, too, and we didn't really get into this, but that the people making the decisions on the on the housing are generally elected people who are from the real estate and development business. Mm -hmm. So that's the perspective they're coming in with. And that's all they want to hear about. They don't want to hear about any, any other perspective. And so whatever's good for development, we decide that that's good for Florida. And obviously, obviously it's not. We've had that talk before about the water management districts and the zoning commissions and, and that kind of thing as well. Development runs this state and it, runs this country in in large measure well uh this running into the ground (laughs) yeah this is a a fascinating conversation of a a book well worth your time holidays right around the corner now i would say the state you're in is is the stocking stuffer and maybe you can make this one uh for under the tree so uh that was a a great great conversation and a and a sobering welcome to florida definitely